Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby. Hello and welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, an anti-capitalist movie podcast. I'm Rivka Rivera. And I am Frank Capello. So Rivka, it's been um, a few weeks since we've done a strike update, because I think, you know, a few weeks ago when the Writers Guild secured their deal with the AMPTP, which represents the studios and the streamers, I think a lot of the coverage that we're seeing of those strikes started to dwindle. Also, there's a lot happening in the world right now, but important for everyone to keep in mind that the Screen Actors Guild, the actors in Hollywood, are still on strike, still waiting to get a deal. They were back in negotiations, I believe, a week ago, and the AMPTP turned down their proposal and offered them like a real a real pittance of a contract. Um but there have been some new developments. So why don't you tell me and the audience about uh, what's happening now? Absolutely. So what I want to say is it's been, while well, it's fucking awful that we are still don't have a contract. And um, SAG put out a video of Fran Drescher and the rest of the SAG negotiating committee sitting at a table and then panning to where they were ghosted by the AMPTP. Um, as our friend Peter Moses said to me, the pan could have been faster. <laughs> could have been a whip pan. Could have, could have been a whip pan. Yeah. Um, but I appreciated the sentiment because they are holding strong, and I was not sure. It should also be said, and we've mentioned it before, but historically, actors in Hollywood usually get the shortest shrift in terms of uh, what they're offered uh, in in these contract negotiations whenever it's time to negotiate a, a contract and historically sag leadership has been uh is usually more amenable to just sort of like r rolling over and just kind of giving concessions and just sort of like you know shrugging their shoulders and be like hey sorry we we did with the best that we could um so 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 yeah so i just wanted to add that little bit of of context so on day 98 of the actor strike Enter the A-team, our Marvel cast, swooping in to save the day. I'm talking... Like, like the actual, like the, the Avengers cast? Like we're talking about like Robert Downey Jr., Chris I'm Evans? I'm not. I'm talking about a recast, but I certainly oh, okay. believe that that's how they see themselves in this scenario. Got so it. imagine a recast, but we have George Clooney, I guess would be... You'll see how little I know of the Marvel Universe. I guess this would be Captain He's America. No, he's probably Iron Man. I think if we're if we're gonna go with this metaphor, I think they're act. These are actual Marvel actors. Ben Affleck, right? Isn't he something? Uh, he was Batman. That is DC. So technically, no. Although he was Daredevil over twenty years ago, but that was before the MCU. It's you know what? It's not important. Okay. What do you? Yeah. <laughs> Let's please. <laughs> and Scarlett Johansson and others. She is an Avenger. Yes. The the point is that uh, as they're referred to, and I'm sure. They probably see themselves. They are the elite A-list actors as opposed to us B-list, C-list, D-list working class actors. So already this classified. They've come in and they said, you know what? 98 days too long. This union not getting their shit together. We have money to make. So they had their own proposal that they brought to um, Fran Drescher and the rest of the SAG board. And their proposal... I get it. Their proposal, it could be a satire, it really had absolutely nothing to do with anything that we are striking for. But here's their proposal. Let you, you tell me what you think. 
the first on this proposal was, hey, why don't we do a dues increase? And here's here's what we're proposing that. So what you need to know is under the current rules, SAG-AFTRA's members pay $231.96 in base dues each year. So I pay this plus 1.575% of covered earnings up to a million dollars. So anyone, which is all of these A-list elite actors earning over a million dollars, they're not paying dues based off of that. They only, it's capped, right? So their proposal was, hey, you know what? Take that cap away. We'll pay 1.575% on any earnings that we make to the to SAG after, which honestly is gr- like great. That's there's nothing wrong with that. That would be awesome. Uh, Clooney estimated that would generate like 50 million dollars a year, but this is the issue. We're not. That has nothing to do with what we are asking the AMPTP for. They have. They don't even have anything to do with negotiating the. That's between SAG and its members. That's not has nothing to do with what we're negotiating with the AMTP for PT. You know who I'm talking about. Uh And uh uh as Fran said in a video she released, which I loved, that's kind of apples and oranges. Okay, (laughs) this our dues, our dues like have nothing to do with our income. I'm not getting and it has nothing to do with our health insurance. It doesn't actually help us at all. It's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. Like, yeah, it, this would just put more money into SAG's pocket, like the like the like SAG's like SAG's operating budget. Yes, because like you're saying, this has nothing to do with the income of working class actors or the minimum need needed to be hit to qualify for SAG's health insurance. So, or the collective bargaining process. Like, mm-hmm. it doesn't make a difference. So, let's go with the metaphor of this superhero's elite class of rich actors coming in to save the poor working class actors, right? This is like dumb. <laughs> this is actually, this is, <laughs> so in my, there's a word there in the comedy satire, their intention is good. Although you and I can, we'll get into what the intention might be and what's driving this proposal. But like, this is, this is dumb. And I love that Fran had to come back and be like, it's apples and oranges. What are we talking about? <laughs> Okay, so that was the first proposal. The second proposal was a bottoms-up residual structure. So this proposed that residuals, which we are um, asking the AMPTP to change how much we earn in residuals. Especially on streaming services. Exactly. But this doesn't really address that. This proposal is that a residual structure in which the lowest earning actor would be paid first and the highest earners would get residuals last. What? So it conflates. It doesn't. It's very confusing because it, that has nothing to do with really how anyone's making their money in this way. And it's also not, again, pushing for how much residuals we get. It's trying to let the AMPTP off the hook so that we can get back to work. It conflates residuals with profit participation, which Variety wrote really clearly. So, like, A list actors can negotiate a percentage of profits, right? Which are paid out on the back end and there's this waterfall system based on whoever's getting whatever profit is being made from a film those are points in a movie if you ever hear someone saying like i've got if you ever hear someone saying like i have this many points on this movie that means that you that that someone has negotiated to uh any excess profits the points are the percentage of those profits that they get yeah and this is something that is like you said only a-list actors can negotiate for if you me anyone books a movie 
and no one knows who we are. And we're like, hey, I'd like one point on the movie. The producers would <laughs> say, hey, guess what? You just lost your job. Now, <laughs> that at- would be a radical proposal, right? Sure. Come to us and say, hey, I will give actors on my film. I will commit to giving every actor on the film that I because what's important to keep in mind is these actors are often producers on the films. They're not making their massive amount of money. They're not making their wealth solely being actors. When you get mm-hmm. to a certain level, you're producing and you're getting profit sharing and you have your points. That would be radical. Be like, sure. George, come to us and be like, hey, I want to commit that I will give any points I have will be given to any other actor working on the movie. That's profit mm-hmm. sharing. That's awesome. That's yeah. socialist. That's not what's being proposed. No, residuals are, uh, you know, you've acted in a TV show and the the network or the production entity that owns the rights to that show, when they license it out to other distribution platforms, like let's say NBC is like, hey, Netflix, you can, you can run The Office on Netflix. So that means when uh, Netflix pays that licensing fee, NBC is required to then pay residual payments to all of the actors, writers, etc who worked on that tv show so those are locked in regardless of if the the project is making additional profit on the back end um and everyone is owed those residuals so like what is this proposal saying like you know us rich people will take our residuals no like everyone (laughs) is owed that money that is money that it is people are owed these this is like some of the oldest these are some of the oldest things that actors negotiated for in contracts in like the 40s and they're just like you know what us rich people we can give up a little bit of our residuals it's, it's this is ridiculous delusional i am i'm it's making me laugh because i'm i'm so happy that our union didn't fall for this trash um, here's the response, which I really love. The official response um, to sag after members. We're grateful that a few of our most successful members have engaged to offer ideas and support. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this is... No, you know what this sounds like? This sounds like when your kindergarten teacher would be like, call your parents into the office and be like, R- little Rivka is really, you know, has a lot of strong ideas and brings a lot of enthusiasm into the class from the playground <laughs> like that is the tone of this and i'm here for it yeah i was gonna say it's it sounded to me like this is re- this is such a cool um picture you drew we're gonna hang this up <laughs> right over here on the refrigerator so everyone can see it <laughs> beyond donating extraordinary sums of money to the sag afra foundation in support of members during the strike that is a good thing yeah i mean these... the, the least they can do. <laughs> yeah. these influential individuals Like, I feel like they're trolling them. That's straight up trolling them. These influential individuals have sought to offer suggestions. In particular, (laughs) in particular, with regard to our streaming sharing proposal and the AMPTP's characterization that we are asking for too much. They have contemplated increasing the amount of money that the highest earners contribute to the union via raising caps on dues. Great. They should do that anyways. This generous concept is worthy of consideration, but it is in no way related to and would have no bearing on the present contract or even as a subject of collective bargaining. It is, in fact, prohibited by federal labor law. For example, our pension and health plans are funded exclusively from employer contributions. It also doesn't speak to the scale of the overall package. Having said that, I can't get through this. (laughs) <laughs> Having said that, 
Their creativity and earnest desire to help solve the impasse are very much appreciated. It is worth noting that the union has a very robust process to include the concerns of, of every member. Yeah, I mean, this is just emblematic of just how out of touch famous people are, rich and famous people are. It changes your brain chemistry. It changes the way you think, the way you perceive the world. Um, I'm sure that they all thought that they were doing a very nice thing and not a single person on their team in their orbit was like, hey, I'm going to explain to you how labor law works. Uh, this is, yeah, like you said, this is completely irrelevant. Um, but hey, I mean, I guess thanks. Thanks, George Clooney and... Ben Affleck. We'll super still nice. take your money. I mean, I still will be happy to like have more money towards our our union fund. Like, I I think that's a great idea. Is that like so? Let's get to just the intention, because behind it, I think the 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 dark part is they want this strike over. They don't give a fuck mm-hmm. about our working people at the end of the day maybe they do but like you you're starting to see the intolerance of the elite to stick with it Mm -hmm. it was cute and now it's enough and this is the really crucial important point right like this is where we need to be and we need to stay strong and i'm so happy to see our union standing strong because now they're pissed because they're you're obviously seeing their money being fucked with which it's not actually but you know when you're that wealthy it starts to get uncomfortable and and as we pointed out they're all producers on these projects and i guess their interim work agreements aren't cutting it for them even though they've all been getting it they could work if they want to work so this was them being like can we cut the shit so i'm interested to see what happens because i'm pretty sure they probably thought their little that plate their their plan is gonna work they brought in an essay that they wrote on a totally different mm-hmm. subject, and the teacher just well, has to be like, oh, sweetie, no. That's such an important point, though, that you made that, like, this is this is the elite class of actors within the union who are, it seems, like, breaking from the rank and file. And SAG is unique in, you know, most labor unions around the, the country and the world in that, like, you know, there are some members of the union who are extremely wealthy, extremely successful. And then there's the 99% of the union who are just regular working class people. And and the influence that the upper class mm-hmm. actors have is just so far outweighs any of the influence that like literally the 99% of the other rank and file members have. And I, I mean, I would look into the, the history of SAG strikes in the back. I bet this is this has been a sticking point that has resulted in some of these, you know, less generous contracts for SAG having been inked over the last several decades is just like, you know, the 1% of actors just being like, we're over it. Mm, we're tired of this. This is this is stupid now. It's very, we've talked about this in movies before. It's very cosplay. It's mm. very, I'm going to go on the picket line. Look at me. So cute. I'm going to interview it and say some like lefty thing. And I'm not saying this about every actor who's joined. I think it's really important that you use your power to get on the picket line. I'm talking specifically about the actors who in this class who then are like, okay, I'm going to get off the picket line and try and cut a deal. And you know what? Like, this is pure speculation. You know, a lot of these people are extremely wealthy. I can't imagine this is fully about money. I think probably a lot of it is no one is looking at me. No one is talking about me right now. No one is putting (laughs) a camera on me. I just miss it. I need to be in the spotlight. So, And then the good faith version is that the sweet, sweetie, sweetums, really thought this would <laughs> they really they really thought that they were helping 
Uh, yeah, that is the good face. That is the good faith read on this. Um, so we, we could be charitable in this moment. All right. Well, that was a much needed laugh. Thank you for illuminating me. Um, all right. We should move to our conversation. But first, we want to let our audience know that this podcast is produced by the two of us. We perform all of the necessary labor to make this show happen. And as we're trying to practice our anti-capitalist values, we will not be selling ads on this show. We rely completely on community support to keep the show going. So if you're able to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get access to our entire back catalog of premium episodes, and you'll be directly supporting this show. You can also leave us a one-time contribution in our tip jar, and you can find all of those links in the episode description in your podcast player or by going to mvcpod.com. You can also help us out for free by leaving a rating and review for this show on your podcast player. It only takes a few seconds, and it is very helpful in boosting the algorithm and getting this show in front of more people, so we really appreciate it. We're going to take a break, but we'll be right back with Francisco Perez and our discussion. Is it a discussion? More of like a history and economics lesson, but a but an entertaining one. On The Wizard of Oz. All right, we are very excited today to be joined by Francisco Perez. Francisco is a solidarity economy activist, educator, and researcher. He's currently an assistant professor of economics at the University of Utah and a senior economist at the Center for Economic Democracy. He's the former director of Center for Popular Economics, a nonprofit collective of political economists whose programs and publications demystify the economy and put useful economic tools in the hands of people fighting for social and economic justice. He researches the history and political economy of the CFA Franc, a currency union of 14 countries in West and Central Africa. Wow, Francisco, welcome to Movies versus Capitalism. We're very excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be to be here. It's great. I think you're our first official economist. I'll, I'll try not to disappoint. <laughs> we did want to ask you, so in, in chatting before you, you came to do this interview, we found out that um, you offer a free c- curriculum on economics for emancipation. So can you tell us a little bit about that free curriculum and how it ties into uh, the, the larger work that you're doing? Yeah, so this uh, comes out of my work with the Center for Popular Economics, which you know, has been around since 1979, been doing workshops and trainings, uh, originally with uh, unions, uh, union stewards, rank and file workers, uh, with the decline of the union movement moving to, you know, move to work more with social justice activists. But the idea is how do we get uh, progressive economic ideas out there to regular people who are trying to change the world, right? So demystify the economy. A lot of people think that economics is very, you know, difficult to understand, if not impossible, right? It's, it's presented that way because precisely because we do not want regular people taking part in these discussions. We want it to remain an elite discourse among high-level politicians, bureaucrats, business people. So we try to start from the very basics. What is an economy, right? And try to emphasize that the economy is all the work that we do, not simply what is reported in the business press. We talk about you know, how you're exploited, right? The, 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 we talk about surplus value, right? The, the why capitalists introduced technology into the production process, right? Why capitalism brought you the iPhone as the famous internet meme talks about. You know, we get into what the, the history of capitalism, right? How it's always been racialized, always been gendered. Um, we talk about basic concept of the circuit of capital, right? Which anyone who's ever run a small business understands, right? You put money out there, you hire workers, you try to you know, at the end, have more money than you started with, right? Which, you know, sounds pretty simple, but it's important if you're trying to organize against a business to understand how it makes its money. Uh, And then we talk about 
monetary and fiscal policy, some of the stuff we'll be talking about today with the Wizard of Oz, and then what could a post-capitalist society look like, right? What are all the alternatives, right? So if you're convinced that capitalism sucks for various reasons, which we go through in, in the curriculum, then what else are the alternatives, right? What are, what are the kind of different flavors of socialism that people have tried or concocted? And then finally, how do we get there, right? What are different strategies for change? What does this stuff look like? And what are people trying to do now, right? So all of that is available for free online. Uh, there's a bunch of videos that explain this stuff. There are some slides that you can go through, uh, all available to freely download. You can either do it yourself, or we encourage you to find other people to form a study group and go through the curriculum together. It's meant to be participatory and interactive, and we would love your feedback on how to improve it and make sure that we can all become better, smarter, uh, anti-capitalists. Ooh, that is so cool. What a Hell gift. Yeah. What a gift to the movement. What a gift to every person like myself who, when you know you're experiencing exploitation and oppression under this system, but you have never been given in your education any words to name it or ways to identify it and you look for ways to simplify it and grasp at it like what a gift i'm so excited to find a study group to move through this with yes again it's all available economics for emancipation.net and the goal is that you know we developed this having done hundreds of workshops with activists throughout the years and you know our goal is to is to name feelings and ideas you've already had Right. Mm. So we're hopefully not teaching you anything you don't already know. We're helping you put a name to it and hopefully connect some of the dots. That is such crucial education work, uh, like political re-education work. I know for me, I had that exact same experience. Like my entire life, there was just something internally inside me that was just like, man, I feel like I feel like the problem is that there's just some rich assholes at the top who are messing everything up for everybody. And I didn't know how to put that into like <laughs> a like a proper analysis. And I remember the first time like reading Marx and being like, oh, oh, wow, this is what I've been missing. So that is mm -hmm. yeah, that is such a valuable tool that you are giving people. So that's awesome. Uh, and we will make sure to link to that in the show notes. And Francisco, I know you're going to give us a little bit of a taste of some of this economic language and teach us a bit using the film that you chose today. But before we jump into it, I am curious just about you a little bit. How did you find yourself studying economy? How did you find yourself in this role in, in your activism? Um, thank you. Yeah, I you know grew up working class in New York City. My parents are Dominican immigrants. So I was very much aware at, a, at an early age, my, you know, my parents did what they could to take us back to, to their to their hometown. So we, you know, as often as we could afford, uh, could afford it, we would go. And I, so I was aware very early on of just the mess that is global capitalism and how unequal it is, right? Seeing people with dirt floors, outhouses, right? No running water, no electricity, children who are clearly starving, right? And, and, and understanding that, you know, I lived in a better situation in the US, but was also poor working class um, and, and seeing then the inequalities in a place like New York City, and then tr just trying to understand like, what's going on here, right? Um, how do I explain this? And of course, you know, our, our culture offers sort of three grand narratives, right? So conservatives will tell you, it's your fault, there's some kind of moral deficiency with you, it's a culture of poverty, right? Which, you know, sometimes you hear that coming from, from our folks, and I definitely felt it at some points in my life too, but ultimately felt very false, right? Where I was like, I don't think that, especially as I started interacting with more upper middle class and then, Eventually, I went to Harvard and met actual upper class people being like, no, these people oh, are clearly not morally superior to me. Let's 
we can clearly put that aside, right? We are just as hardworking, if not more hard, you know, like the people I knew in my life who worked the hardest got paid the least. Like, that's not the liberal story is, you know, poverty happens, people need education, people need housing, people need things. But like, there's no villain. It just, you know, it just kind of dropped from the sky. And like, you know, we'll figure out a way to fix it if you just elect the right Democrat. And, you know, eventually you realize like, that's kind of bullshit too, right? Like, there is a very clear villain, right? Which is there's exploitation in this world. There is oppression, right? People who are fighting for a better life are often put down. People who work very hard, you know, often do not get ahead because someone else is profiting off of their labor, right? Which is the radical yeah. story, right? Which is what brought me to, hey, something is clearly happening in the economy. This money is going somewhere, right? If my family and friends and and neighbors are working really hard, then someone is benefiting from it. And it's certainly not us. So, you know, let's, let's name and shame that villain. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, eventually I, you know, there's a longer story there. You know, I, I took economics 101 and was told that uh, health insurance was bad for young people. Right. It was exploitative. We were, you know, subsidizing other people who were sicker. Uh, rent control was bad for renters. Um, you know, minimum wages were bad for workers. Right. All this idea that, you know, if you try to do anything good for, for poor people or working class people, that it just sort of backfires. When I knew that I was like, you know, the only thing that took my family out of poverty was my dad getting a, a union job. The only thing that kept our family from being displaced was the fact that we owned our apartment building was a limited equity housing co-op, right? So I was like, forget this, you know, mm -hmm. economics 101 stuff, it's crap. But then eventually I, re I learned that there is a different tradition of economics, right? There is the Marxist tradition. There is a radical tradition that does again, fit in with, with my experience as a working class person, as a child of immigrants, that there is, again, power and exploitation and abuse uh, and oppression in this world. And we cannot understand the economy. We cannot understand who does and you know, who has and who doesn't have, right? The haves and the have nots without that, right? So, you know, my own personal story, my own intellectual journey kind of brought me to this work. Um, and I'm happy now to try to share these ideas with other people uh, as best I can. That's incredibly powerful. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing all of that personal, your personal journey. I think that I think a lot of people will probably hear that and be like, Oh, wow, that's yep, very had a similar, you know, upbringing journey. So I'm glad you're you're here now, because we, we need people like you in this <laughs> movement, for sure. All right. So let's get into it. The movie you chose for us today is The Wizard of Oz. Ever heard of it? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Probably one of the most influential stories on the world, at least definitely in the West. The film was directed by Victor Fleming, although we'll we'll get into it because there were a few directors throughout its making, but it's credited oh. to Victor Fleming. Um, written by Noel Langley, Florence Ryerson, and Edgar Allan Wolfe. The music was composed by Harold Arlen and adapted by Herbert Stothart, with lyrics by Edgar Yip Harburg. Based on L. Frank Baum's 1900 novel, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, the film, which was released in 1939, was made by Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer MGM and stars Judy Garland, Frank Morgan, Ray Bolger, Burt Lair, Jack Haley, and Margaret Hamilton. Its budget was $2.7 and it grossed over $25 million worldwide. That's like a billion dollars today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. And in case you haven't seen it in a while, you forgot the story. It follows Kansas teenager Dorothy and her dog Toto as they are whisked away via tornado to the magical land of Oz 
To return home, Dorothy must travel to the Emerald City to parlay with the wizard, the great and powerful Oz. And on the way, she's befriended by a talking scarecrow, a tin man, and the cowardly lion who help Dorothy reach Oz and ultimately defeat the Wicked Witch of the West. And a little bit of historical context for when this film came out. Pretty close to the release of uh, the Grapes of Wrath film, which came out in 1940, which we've also uh, podcasted about. It is 1939. FDR is the president as the United States emerges from the Great Depression. World War II is ongoing, and in September, the United States declares its neutrality in the war. In February, the Hewlett-Packard Company is founded in Palo Alto, California. In, also in February, a Nazi rally at Madison Square Garden is organized by the German-American Bund in New York City, and more than 20,000 people attend. I think sometimes people forget that there was a there was a vociferous fascist movement in the United States in the late 1930s. Um, in April, John Steinbeck's novel, The Grapes of Wrath, is first published. And in December, LaGuardia Airport opens for business in New York City. So, Francisco, you gave us a few films, but this one was most interesting because you say that you use this to teach economy. I'm going to ask you to start there. Tell us a little bit about this movie from your lens. So, yeah, this movie is um, we use as a pedagogical device because it's very difficult again when you know, economics is considered to be um, too complicated for, for most regular people. And there are certain aspects of economics that are even more kind of considered even more arcane and technical and monetary policy is usually one of them, right? You start talking about the Federal Reserve and interest rates and exchange rates and all that stuff and people's eyes just start glossing over. And though, you know, it's an important part of um, our political economy, it determines who wins and who loses, right? And it's become even more salient now since the um, increase in inflation with the pandemic, right? We're seeing the kind of return of these uh, old debates around what causes inflation, how to deal with it, and what the, the, the human and social costs are. And, but so it's, you know, we're, we're always looking for ways to how do we have those conversations with people in a way that um, reflects their experiences that they would be able to understand. And, you know, in this process, you know, I learned that the, story of the Wizard of Oz, which many of us saw as children. And, you know, I definitely remember rainy days in elementary school when they would play it for us in the cafeteria, sure. uh, you know, certain, you know, and, you know, so people know the story and it turns out it's an allegory for the political economy of monetary policy, right? It is specifically about the gold standard and the debates around what was called bimetallism in the 1890s, right? And <laughs> most people are like, gold standard, what? <laughs> bimetallism, what are you talking about? But, you know, for those of you who know your American history, it is, you know, talks about the populist movement, um, you know, which is important in in understanding the history of, of uh, progressive you know, social movements in the United States. And, you know, it is each character in the film represents different interest group in an in understanding. Right? You know, so you can it's really it's an entry point into the class politics of monetary policy told through, you know, this. Um, sort of whimsical children's tale, right? So, you know, that's why we use it and that's why it matters. Yeah, let's dig it. Let's start with the monetary policy stuff because I remember when we were talking over email, you you said that this is an allegory for monetary policy and I, like my head exploded a little bit. So yeah, get <laughs> like, like what, so what what is the allegory specific? Because I had my own inferences and then also like did some research into sort of the, the larger class politics of the movie. But I'm really curious. Can you explain this monetary policy allegory part of it? 
Yeah, so first I do have to do some brief, somewhat <laughs> boring historical context, right? So we're, because we're talking about the 1890s, yeah. right? The sure. book is written in 1899 and published in 1900. You know, so through, you know, much of the late 18th century, there's actually deflation, which means, you know, we're used to inflation, which is prices go up, right? You're like, you know, I went to McDonald's and a Big Mac was, you know, $8, uh, Big Mac meal was $8 five years ago, and now it's $15, right? Yeah. So we're used to prices going up. They were seeing prices going down, right? Deflation, right? Your, your Big Mac becomes cheaper. And specifically, farm prices were falling even faster, right? So think about, you know, your farmer in Kansas, you know, selling wheat. And, you know, as, you know, you produce more each year, the price of what you're producing is actually going down, which is a huge problem, especially if you are in debt, right? Because mm. now you have to pay, you have to pay back with interest and your incomes, guess what, are going down, mm. right? So that's the first major piece of um, historical context. Secondly, there was an earlier Great Depression, right? So one of the interesting parallels in the film is it's released in 1939 in the midst of what we think of now as the Great Depression following the Wall Street crash of 1929. Well, previously there was a Great Depression in the 1890s, right? And, you know, just to give you a sense, unemployment peaked in 1894 at 18%, right? Oh, damn. We had in March, 2020, unemployment reached 22% for about a few weeks. Wow. Right? Wow. Um, it was about 25% in the early 1930s, right? In 1932, you know, background mm -hmm. to FDR's election, got us the New Deal, right? So this is, you know, so we're talking levels of unemployment that cause serious social unrest and could lead potentially to like revolutionary change, mm -hmm. right? So 18% unemployment in 1894. In 1890, the government had passed what's called the Sherman Silver Purchasing Act, which allowed, and this is where we get into the monetary policy aspect of it, allowed the limited coinage of silver, which stoked fears around the world that the U.S. would abandon the gold standard, right? So at that point, the most of the world was, you know, either on or joining what was called the gold standard, which meant you tied your currency to gold. So $1, I think, was something like 20 ounce, you know, $20 was one ounce of gold, right? Mm -hmm. So if you showed up to, you know, theoretically, you could show up to a bank and say, here's a $20 bill, give me an ounce of gold. Or you could do the reverse, say, here's an ounce of gold, give me $20, right? That's what the gold standard meant. And then every country set its own parity to gold, right? Said, you know, this many British pounds is worth this much gold, this many French francs or this many Swiss francs or this many Spanish pesos, right? And this might be a dumb question, but did this also mean that basically like any any state's uh, treasury had to have that amount of gold in its reserves to account for its paper currency that was in circulation? Is, is that true or is that not true? Yeah. So every bank, every private bank, and then every, you know, think of, you know, the gold in like a place like Fort Knox was literally mm -hmm. meant to be a vault in case, you know, Frank or Riff showed up with dollars saying, here, where's my gold? Right. Got it. So okay. That was literally oh. it, right? They were supposed, it was, that's when, that's when people meant by backed by gold or the currency is no longer backed by anything. It's because before you used to be able to say, here's a dollar bill, give me the equivalent in gold ounces. Uh, in this case, the US government in 1890 said, you can also convert your dollars into silver, right? And why was this a big deal? Because the US produces silver, there was more silver, silver was more abundant than gold, right? So this was a way oh, to wow. increase the money supply, right? To increase the money supply, which meant supposedly, you know, once you expand the money supply, it makes it easier to borrow and spend, right? So it's good for debtors. 
Uh-huh. It's good for folks who want to stimulate the economy, right? So hopefully this will all start making more sense as we go through this conversation. No, I'm with you. This is fascinating. I also love moments like this because I'm like, man, we just based all of these things on some like shiny rocks in the ground. That's so silly. <laughs> That's so silly. Yes. Like, I mean, <laughs> and I mean, it, it gets even better than that. Like, you know, so there's all his, there's a whole long history of what's called commodity money, right? Things that were money, right? Stuff that you could actually hold and touch. You know, now it's paper, which is tangible in a certain way, but like, paper itself has no inherent value, right? Like mm-hmm. right. if the zombies came and ate our brains tomorrow, right? Like, and you, you know, what what are you going to do with your like worthless paper bills in an apocalypse? Write a scenario? poem, Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so like, you know, and you could, I guess, burn it to burn to, to warm your house or you could use this toilet paper, right? But it would, at that point, it reverts to just being paper. People have used all kinds of things, right? Like my favorite example is buckskins, right? The idea of like five bucks comes from like, hey, people would actually give you like, Oh. You know, oh. I, can can I pay my rent with bucks, right? With the actual mm. buckskins that I went out and hunted and skinned and I'm now exchanging, you know, for other things that I need. It turns out that gold and silver are, are better than stuff like tobacco or wampum or, you know, other things that they could, have, could be used with money because you're, you know, if you try to store your money as tobacco, well, tobacco can, it rots, right? Like, yeah. You know, so you want something that will mm. last a long time. You want something that you can cut into small pieces. Like, mm. hey, the shiny gold, you know, has its advantages. It has disadvantages that is bulkier than paper, right? So, you know, this, so people used paper because it was more convenient, right? It's more convenient to pay in cash or to write a check. But ultimately, if, you know, if you were really worried about the value of that piece of paper, the gold standard said, hey, you can go and return, you can go redeem your money for gold. There's also a lot of moralistic language with this stuff, right? Like the, the idea of redemption itself, right? Um, you know, that that's a whole other angle you, you, we can go down. But, you know, in this case, the U.S. wanted to mint silver, right, to gym the economy. There was uh, people who blamed that uh, attempt to coin silver in 1894, the, the Great Depression of 1893, and they repealed the Silver Act. So you had you know, a coalition of farmers who said, you know, we want free silver. And you had other people who were more radical, who were pushing, who were called greenbackers, who were pushing for just straight up paper money. And the idea was we need more money that that will make it easier for folks to borrow and spend. That will increase inflation, which is good because prices are actually going down and we don't want them to do that because mm-hmm. we're in debt and that makes our debt harder to pay. Mm-hmm. Right. And it will also increase employment. Uh, and output, right? So it's good for workers and farmers. It's bad for Wall Street, right? There are people who are like, I want to maintain the absolute value of my money, right? I have a big hoard of gold coins and I want to make sure that that hoard keeps its value, right? So you're starting to see the politics of, you know, there's what we could call kind of a a loose money uh, coalition or a tight money coalition. You can also use terms like inflation hawks and doves, which is how often the media you know, sort of frames it today, right? So the inflation doves are the people who say employment and other things are more important than inflation. And the inflation hawks are the ones who say, absolutely, I cannot lose a cent off the value of my massive pile of money, right? Mm-hmm. But also, you know, that they play into working class concerns who, you know, people don't want to lose the value of their hard-earned dollars. It's not only people who have huge sums of wealth, right? So it gets very complicated. But Or, you know, I prefer to talk about it in terms of functional and sound finance, right? Functional finance is what is the point of money? The point of money is to create a vibrant economy, right, that serves our needs, right? Mm -hmm. So obviously the point is employment. We want to make sure that people have 
the ability to, to, to take care of themselves. And then the Sound Money Coalition are the people who said the point is to maintain the value of money at all costs, right? Price stability, low inflation. So, you know, that struggle looked different in the 1890s, but it's the same struggle today, which is why we still use the Wizard of Oz, right? So, yeah. So, so, okay. So, how, so where does the Wizard of Oz come into play? So, it comes into play. So, you have Dorothy, who represents sort of the American farmer, honest, hardworking, family oriented, wholesome, and is part, you know, leading the, you know, represents sort of the populist movement and the free silver advocates within the populist movement, right? Who want, who are inflation doves, who want functional finance, who want loose monetary policy, right? Who want a higher money supply in order to combat deflation, make it easier for farmers to pay back their debts. And also, again, we're dealing with 18% unemployment, hopefully help the economy recover, get more money out there, help it become easier for people to invest, again, borrow and spend, create more jobs, right? Mm -hmm. So um, the cyclone itself, people are, you know, people argue symbolizes the populist movement itself, which, you know, upended traditional politics. Kansas is, you know, again, a reference to either the generic farmer or to the 1900 Democratic Party convention in Kansas City, Missouri. The Wicked Witch of the East, uh, many people argue, represents Wall Street or big business in the, on the East Coast. Again, remember this is in 1890s, right? So mm-hmm. most of the West is still being settled and colonized. Uh, so that, you know, when people say the West, they mean what we think now is the Midwest. The Wicked Witch of the East wears silver shoes, right? Which represents the free silver movement. That's right. In the original book, it was silver shoes and not ruby slippers. That's something that I know. So the, move, so the movie changes it. Uh, although the, the 1970s adaptation with Michael Jackson, The Wiz, it's silver again. So they use the original. Oh, okay. The yellow brick road is obviously the gold standard. The Wizard of Oz, Oz is, o- is OZ ounce, right? It's also a metaphor for mm. um, gold and silver. Washington, D.C. is the Emerald City. Um, the scarecrow is represents the Western farmer, right? He thinks he lacks a brain, who thinks he's too stupid to understand monetary policy, but uh, eventually realizes that they're capable of getting it, right? So in some ways... Hopefully the scarecrow over also represents the people listening today. Like you are not too stupid to understand this, right? Mm, like mm-hmm. you, oh, you know, like, you know, you don't have to sing if I only had a brain, right? Like you can just <laughs> hopefully listen to this episode and, and get something out of it and try to understand mm. the political economy of monetary policy. The Tin Man is a symbol for the industrial worker, right? So this is America in the late 1800s, industrializing, urbanizing. This is, you know, the rise of the factory worker, um, and many populists thought of industrial work as, as alienating, right? You go from being an independent artisan to being a cog in the machine, which is why the Tin Man has no heart, right? So it's, it is sort of mm. an anti-capitalist statement, right? The idea of sort of industrial factory work as alienating. The cowardly lion is William Jennings Bryan. <laughs> So I'm sorry. I just I I I love that uh, like the scarecrow and the Tin Man represent very like discrete groups, and it's like the Cowardly Lion. He's just one. He's just this one guy. <laughs> Although uh, he represents a group too, because you know. So, the, so William Jen- was a fat. Have you guys heard of William Jennings Bryan? By the way, this is he's a fascinating figure. I do know I like a little bit about William Jennings Bryan, but please, please, please explain. So again, if I go on too many tangents, let me know. But so he was three times the Democratic Party nat. You know, candidate for president in 1896, in 1900, and in 1908. So in some ways, he represents your like Democratic Party politician, right? And why is he the cowardly lion? Because 
speaks big words, but ultimately fails to deliver, right? Ultimately is not willing to actually challenge the status quo, willing to challenge the powers that be, mm. but will talk a good game, right? So, you know, and, and, and you know, for people of my generation, he's very reminiscent of someone like Obama, right? Um, mm. Beautiful oratory. Sure. And, you know, William Jennings Bryan, like, or, was the originator of like the stump speech, right? Mm. So like, brilliant order, but ultimately the cowardly lion, right? Also was famous for being the lawyer who defended um, creationism against evolution in the, in the famous Sculpt's Monkey trial, right? Oh, and I think that's right. That's, that's how where, most people know yep, him. That's where, um, yeah, And yep. he passed away, I think a few months after that in 1925 or 26. He was also later on the Secretary of State under Woodrow Wilson and was thought of as something as an anti-imperialist he and, and a pacifist. He resigned because uh, he didn't want the U.S. to enter World War One, Although I think that stuff, as a Dominican, I think that stuff is, is overblown because he also presided over the U.S. occupations of Haiti from 1915 to 1934 and my parents' native Dominican Republic from 1916 to 1924, which I'm like, I don't know about the anti-imperialism and the pacifism, but fascinating character. And in 1896, you know, when he accepts the Democratic Party national nomination, delivers this famous speech where he says, he gives this famous speech, having behind us the producing masses of this nation and the world supported by the commercial interest, the laboring interest and the toilers everywhere. We will answer their demand for a gold standard by saying to them, you shall not press upon the brow of labor, this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. Ooh, I've, right. I've so heard like that before. Yep. So like literally this was, you know, one of the major issues of the time, right? Again, now we think of it as like, oh, cute movie about, but like everyone who was reading this book at, in like 1900 understood exactly what he was referencing that like all of these were stand-ins for the different debates and what we should do with, you know, regarding gold standard and, and silver, you know, move toward bimetallism, which again is a bigger wow. part of the larger debate around should we be for functional finance should we prioritize employment or should we be for sound finance? Should we prioritize low inflation and price stability, right? Which that debate goes on to this day, right? So William Jennings Bryan is the cowardly lion. Let's see, the Washington DC is the Emerald City. I think I mentioned the group, actually the other part of this interesting here is, so the group marching on the Emerald City was symbolic of what was called Coxie's army. So Coxie is this guy who led a group of unemployed workers that demanded that the government put people to work by building public works and finance them through printing money, right? So this was, an un this was a march of unemployed workers to Washington, D.C., which sort of inspired the idea of this group, this motley crew going to on the yellow brick road to the Emerald City, you know, and, and, a, and it's reminiscent of calls today for a job guarantee by, by the modern monetary theory folks, right? So it's, you know, again, you mm -hmm. see many interesting parallels. Um, the poppy fields are supposed to represent the dangers posed by anti-imperialism. This this is one of the ones where I'm not entirely sure what the, what, what apparently okay. people at the time worried that the like anti you know again this is also the U.S. was occupying was invading and occupying Puerto Rico, the Philippines, Guam, right. um, in the in 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 the late 1890s. You know, following the war with Spain, and apparently people thought that anti-imperialism was like some bourgeois middle class concern. You know, don't fall asleep. Don't get kind of lulled into the right. politics of anti-imperialism. I'm going to pause you real <laughs> quick, Francisco, and just... So you're telling me that L. Frank Baum had all of this going on in his head while he was writing 
this child's fantasy? Yes. That is amazing. No one knows. Like, he didn't, like, there's no, like, diary entry okay. case where he's like, here's what every character in my book is supposed to be, right? So, like, there's plausible deniability. You can just be like, hey, this was a children's story. But, you know, many people mm. have speculated, like, this is, there's all these references. Again, if you understand what was going on politically yeah. and economically in the 1890s, it's like. I mean, the closest research I got was, and now I'm like, oh, I wish I'd spent more time on Frank Baum, but we can come back. I can do I can always do that but that he did have an intention of writing tales of fantasy with a difference that there was clearly like a intention there but this is above and beyond <laughs> like it's a lot of detail yeah and thank you for like the college dissertation level analysis <laughs> that you're oh, providing. I love no it. for real I'm yeah no it's it's a once I started looking into this I was like really there, you know because and, and I'd be fascinated now I actually do want to read the book because I'm like the movie cuts off a lot of that stuff um, but, you know, the other people that do show up in the movie are supposedly the Wizard of Oz was this guy, Marcus Alonzo Hanna, who was the chair of the Republican National Committee and kind of widely considered the brains behind William McKinley, who was the Republican candidate who actually defeated um, William Jennings Bryan in that 1896 election. Uh, just as another fascinating tangent, McKinley was assassinated in 1901 by an anarchist in Buffalo. Right. Just to give you a sense of the politics of the era. Right. Like, can you imagine if, if we had that kind of political violence in the U.S. today? Right. Like the, the right wing goes nuts about Antifa. And I'm like, they were you know, you had anarchists murdering presidents in 1901. Right. Like, so, you For know, real. just to give you a sense of like there was a lot going on at that time. The Wicked Witch of the West, people, some people argue is, are the railroads because the, they were the other ones who were kind of squeezing the Western farmers with their monopoly prices. Right. So kind of. The modern day equivalent would be like your Amazon, uh, you know, your kind of big retailer that kind of controls the pipes of the system. That also makes sense within the context of this film, because one thing that I caught that I had never I, it had been like, I don't know, 15 plus years since I'd seen this movie. But um, when we're still in Kansas before we go to Oz, uh, there's the moment where, uh, you know, evil Mrs. Gulch is going to have Toto destroyed and Auntie M says, Elmira Gulch, just because you own half the county doesn't mean that you have the power to run the rest of us. And that's pretty explicit. Like you are you are a large landowner and you are using your you know political power as a landowner in this region to completely squeeze everybody and have do whatever you want. So mm -hmm. that makes sense that you say that 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 the Wicked Witch is a potential metaphor for, you know, railroad barons, essentially. Yeah. So, I mean, the. The other one that people speculate is um, the the winged monkeys are supposed to represent the Plains Indians, right? So kind of tribes like the Sioux and others. Mm -hmm. Again, a very racist portrayal from our point of view. But at the time, Baum was seen as sort of sympathetic to these characters. There's some that people can't really fit. So like no one really knows who the good witch of the North is supposed to be. And in the book, there's a good witch of the South as well, which, you know, does not show up in the film. But like this distinction between good and bad witches, I have does not fit neatly into this into this allegory so you know there you have it right you have the cowardly lion uh dorothy representing the you know dorothy and the scarecrow representing the midwestern farmer and then the tin man representing the urban industrial worker who all want you know who are all inflation doves who all want looser monetary policy who all want a monetary policy that focuses on full employment right everyone who needs a job having a job and then obviously you know at the time farmers were a much bigger part of the american population Farmers being able to pay down their debt and lead decent lives, right, with 
um, prices going up and not down. And then arrayed against them is sort of the entire Eastern establishment of Wall Street, the big businesses, and then you know Washington, D.C., the Republican Party, who all wanted the gold standard and sound money, right? Who, want, who preferred low inflation to full employment, right? So that's why you know, we, we teach this stuff is because those same politics play out today, right? So what are we having, you know, what, what happens now, right? We have a, a big debate over pandemic inflation, right? Those who argue that there was just too much fiscal stimulus, right? Too many stimmy checks going out, too much monetary stimulus, the Federal Reserve kept interest rates too low for too long, right? Basically, they coined too much silver, and that's the problem why for why we have inflation, right? And then mm. there's those who worry that the interest, the Fed is raising interest rates too high and too quickly and potentially creating unemployment. You know, again, some of this stuff sounds very esoteric and complicated and arcane, but, you know, if you're a socialist, the biggest thing we have going for right now in the U.S. is this union drive, right? We're seeing renewed labor militancy, and many people would argue, including myself, that, like, that's due to tight labor markets, right? It's much easier to challenge your boss when employment is high, when you know you can get another job somewhere else, you can just tell him, you know, F off. If unemployment is high, then workers are, too, are usually more scared to challenge their boss because they're worried about losing their jobs, right? So that's, that's what's at stake here, guys, right? Like, that's why this stuff matters is because, you know, the Federal Reserve now is trying to uh, raise interest rates uh, in order to tame inflation, which the theory of how that works is you do that by creating unemployment, right? And higher unemployment is going to make it harder for workers to organize, right? It's going to make it, um, mm. people are going to have less courage to challenge their bosses if they're worried about losing their jobs, right? So that's what's at stake here, right? That's why this stuff matters, right? So, you know, in many ways, you know, we are Dorothy, the Tin Man, you know, the Scarecrow, trying to push these Democratic Party politicians, these cowardly lions, to keep doing what's right for the people and not fall for the sound money arguments that we must, you know, uh, reduce inflation at all costs, including creating mass unemployment, you know, high unemployment again, which would, you know, reduce, if not completely eliminate this rise in, in labor militancy, which is absolutely essential if we're going to build a better world. You know, one I remember learning at one point about like, traditional and this speaks to kind of everything you've just laid out like traditional capitalist economics i think it's 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 rooted in utopian economics which is that and correct me if i'm wrong but that like there always must be some unemployment there always must be some unemployment and then that unemployment is directly tied to inflation um and but that has been disproven time and time again where there has been times like the 70s where you know there was rising unemployment but also rising inflation but i only say that because i remember when i learned that a few years ago i was like oh all of the most important economists that are all the people that are on cnn and cnbc that are talking that are telling us about how to run an economy they're operating from a place where they believe that there must always be a, like a certain a certain amount of people that are unemployed. So it's not like, so they're not, they're not working to create a system that is equal, that has full employment, that sees everyone's needs met. They are like a lot of uh, traditional economics are based in a system that is built on inequality. So the solutions are almost always rooted in another form of inequality. Mm. Yeah. So we're seeing this debate play out right now where there's this notion of what's called the Nehru, the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment or, for short, the natural rate of unemployment, right? And the idea is just what you laid out, Frank. The idea is there is a number, you know, people should think it was 5%, where if you try to bring unemployment below that level, 
right? And of course, 5% unemployment for everyone means 10% unemployment. For Black Americans, it means higher unemployment for women, you know, multiple levels higher unemployment for queer folks and, and, and non-binary people, right? So let's think about what 5% means, right? So if you have, you know, if you try to, you know, get below 5%, then inflation just takes off, right? And therefore you kind of can't do it, right? Sort of the idea is the economy has a sort of natural speed limit. And if you try to go faster than that, your car just sort of breaks down, which ironically, you know, fits in with Marx's notions, right? Which is, you know, if unemployment gets too low, you start threatening profits and therefore, you know, capitalists will always maintain a reserve army of unemployment, right? So this is sort of the capitalist interpretation mm -hmm. of the reserve army of unemployment argument. Part of what we've seen is the economy has gone below that number and we've been fine, right? We can, you know, so again, the, the functional finance argument is we should keep pushing, right? Put your pedal to the metal, right? Expand, do, use expansionary fiscal and monetary policy until everyone has a job. If inflation arises, we can find ways of dealing with it, or we can simply say, you know, full employment is more important, right? Do you want to live in a world with zero unemployment and 10% inflation or a world with 10% you know, unemployment and 0% inflation, right? If you had to choose, right? And mm -hmm. functional finance says 0% unemployment, right? Putting people to work matters way more. And the sound money folks say, no, what matters is keeping the value of money exactly where it is, right? And again, we see that with the pandemic inflation debate, the entire story of the Eurozone crisis is this, the Eurozone in many ways was a recreation of the gold standard, very explicitly so in some cases, right? Greece could not change its exchange rate, right? It had tied to the Euro and therefore it had to do what people, what economies did during the gold standard period, which is what we call internal devaluation, which is your prices and your wages go down, right? Instead of changing one price, the exchange rate, you have to change all the prices in your economy, which is a very painful process. And what we've seen is there, the Wizard of Oz won, right? The, the gold standard coalition won. And, you know, people, the people of Greece have yet to recover, right? It's just now we're talking not just a lost decade, we're talking a lost generation. And then, you know, the crypto folks are all gold bucks too, right? The idea of Bitcoin is there is a certain amount of money that will be created, right? Think of the, even the language they use mining, right? Like, why would you call this digital process a mining? Because it's similar to mining for gold, right? Mm -hmm. So originally kind of what, what changed the game in the late 1890s, the reason we, we, the U.S. stayed on the gold standard and didn't move to, to coining silver was um, the economy did recover. Part of that was they discovered more gold, including in South Africa, right? So gold goes up, money supply goes up. You no longer need to coin silver, right? We still have gold bucks today. There's people now calling for a return to the gold standard. And much of crypto, especially Bitcoin, can be understood as a desire for, again, money that never loses its value, right? They're always talking about how fiat money, paper money, the money that you and I use is constantly being debased, right? So, you know, again, this allegory, even though it refers to a very specific time and place in the 1890s, we think helps explain, you know, who wins and who loses from whether money, monetary policy is loose or not, whether or not we should be inflation hawks or doves. Uh, and those debates continue to play out today and will probably continue to play out for the foreseeable future. In this allegory, because it touches on so many things, if there was one piece, one character that you think our audience should be like most focused on its resonance today, which would it be? So I should also should have added earlier, you know, the idea the what I've been explaining comes from this famous article by an economist called Hugh Rokoff, 
published in 1990 uh, in the Journal of Political Economy. The one thing, the one character I feel like I would add, um, you know, so you talked about The Wizard of Oz being this sort of the, you know, what I would call the Dick, the Dick Cheney of the 1890s, right? Sort of the brains <laughs> behind this sort of Republican president. Uh -huh. But I actually feel like there's a lot more in there about how money itself works, right? So The Wizard of Oz, you know, spoiler alert, like, you know, if, if there's the man behind the, the curtain. I think I think it's okay to, to spoil The Wizard right, of Oz it's, at this point. It's all, it all, it, it's, it's, all, it's all smoke and mirrors, right? And one of the things we really struggle to explain to people, and once they get it, it's a very powerful insight, is money is just made up, right? Yeah. It's literally created out of thin air, right? The Federal Reserve, whenever it buys anything, the money just appears. <laughs> and whenever it sells anything, the money just disappears, right? It is like magic. We do have a weird version of a magic money tree that some people get to shake loose and have you know money dropped on them and then other people are denied access to, right? Oh. So I feel like the biggest part of it is all, to me, the biggest part of the allegory is it's all smoke and mirrors, right? It's mm -hmm. all the man behind the curtain, right? And we're all thinking about how this is the way things are and these are the rules of the game. And it's like, no, nah, man, people... This stuff is a social convention, right? I, you give me real stuff of value when I hand you an hundred dollar, you know, bill, which it's a piece of paper, bro. Like that's, it's, there's nothing you could do with it for real. Yeah. Or like I Venmo you money or like cash app you money. And it's like zeros and ones. And it's like, this thing works only because we all believe it, right? Only mm. because we believe that like, if you give me a hundred dollars, some that someone else basically will also give me something of real value, right? Food or clothing or shelter in return for these like zeros and ones or these pieces of paper. And it's like, it's all smoke and mirrors. We, we believe it and it's, and it's enforced with violence. <laughs> Cause I yeah. think about that and I'm like, wow, it'd be so amazing if we could all just get on like one giant zoom, like all the, and be like, let's like not, <laughs> but then we know the powers that be would, they enforce it with made up, rules also but there's real enforcement of and we're even farther away from it today because like as you said we've gone off of the gold standard like most people don't even use paper money now we're just looking at like digits and decimals of light on a screen you know like it's it's so and i think that was a big thing during the pandemic a lot of people in realizing that the u.s could actually print money to use it to help people i think people for the first time ever were like Oh, you guys can just do that? You can just do that at any point. You're just choosing yeah. not to. Like not nothing that the way this society is organized is built around actually meeting people's needs. It's just to protect this fictional wealth that we've all collectively agreed means something. It's yeah, it's absolutely absurd. Yeah, I was I was thinking about that scene when they first show up to the Emerald City and they ask to see the wizard and the guy's like, "No, like who the hell are you? Like you're not getting in." Right? And then they're like, "Oh, but we know the good witch." And then he's like, oh, cool. Then you're in the club, right? And it's like, because I think about, you know, what happened during the pandemic. And it's like, yes, you know, we all got our stimulus checks, which is a great thing. But some people got paycheck protection program loans, right? Some people got, you know, tons of bailout money via the Federal Reserve, right? And it's like, those people knew the good witch, right? Wow. They knew they could get past yeah. the gate, right? They yep. could get past the gatekeeper who has a nice big, you know, scythe mm -hmm. or sword or something, right? Where it's like, there is the role of violence. There's the role of gatekeeping. There's the role of connections and like who you know, where it's like, again, some people have access to just money from this drop from the sky and other people. Economists literally talk about helicopter money, right? Wow. So some people literally mm. get like helicopter money dropped on them and other people don't, 
right? And I feel like that's the part of the allegory I would want to push. That more. the good witch, that like my brain was like, I got that. I'm uh-huh, there. Uh-huh, uh-huh, I mean, uh-huh. I got a lot of it, but that is just so real. And do you know the good witch is just code for everything. You're so, I mean, it's so true. In every time you have, same with healthcare, with anything, you're just, it's so frustrating because there's this assumption that actually, if you can figure it out, it's not that bad as opposed to dismantling these insane systems. I also got major from this watch, the Emerald City, like major like PMC vibes from the citizens of the Emerald City. I was like, no one is working. It seems like uh, seems like this is the ownership class. This is the professional managerial class. Um, and the fact that they forced them to get clean as they are entering the city, I was like, there's definitely some there's definitely like a class based conflict that is happening between the citizens of emerald city <laughs> the citizens of emerald city and these like bumpkins that just like rolled in that like have to they must go get washed before they see anyone <laughs> that is important uh, apparently in the book they make you wear green like literally money colored glasses when you enter the emerald city and they put a gold belt on you wow <laughs> and oh. there's like and there's like more where there's like a whole scene where like he meets the press and there's a whole like there's a whole set of characters to stand in for journalists or like, yes, apparently, you know, like the, the, now I'm like really inspired to read the book. Cause I'm like, the book apparently has like, you know, really fully d- develops this, this allegory and takes it in several other directions. I mean, the, the, the other, the last thing that I will use to sort of belabor this allegory is the fact that she had her silver shoes on and she's like, you could have gone home any time. The yeah. whole time. So mean. The where whole time. Where it's like, you knew what the answer was. <laughs> like, the power was within you. Where it's just like, the whole Obama, like, we are the ones we've been waiting for. It's like, like yeah, like, she, she could have just tapped her shoes the yeah. whole time. And also, the good witch could have just told her that from the top. <laughs> like, <laughs> could have just let her know. I was so pissed at Glinda at the end of the movie. But she had to go through the journey and make her friends and you know try give us those wonderful songs and dances and yeah because if you don't if you don't suffer first then you won't actually enjoy your successes at the end although it was really interesting tracking at least this time tracking dorothy's journey and just noticing how everything happens coincidentally like she's not actually active in any of her including going home including just like never discovering or pushing forward really anything she's just walking down this road but she doesn't it's not like she by her own smarts or not whatever figures out about the water and the wicked witch she just it's like an accident that it happens and i thought that was also i there must be something behind that as well because it it seems to confront this bootstrap narrative that there's something inherently special and like anybody could have accidentally done those things. Everything's just happening to her on this journey. Yeah. I just interpreted that through a gendered lens where I'm like, if it was, if Dorothy was a guy, um, you know, would have been a man, they would have, you know, given her a lot more agency. And then the bucket on the, on the witch I love, cause you know, the, the, the wizard literally says he licked, she liquidated her. Right. Which is just is financial <laughs> term. <right? laughs> wow. So I feel like, again, I'm like, you know, they're, they're hitting you over the head with some of this stuff, but you know, people just want to see, you know, cool songs. I do want to hit before we finish our conversation. I know we're in our allegory, but there was a lot of like things about the making of this movie. This was one of my favorite films as a child. So it was so exciting to go back. And I used to be like really obsessed with 
I didn't have the words for exploitation, but just like the stories of the making of this movie as a child, I thought it was, especially because I was like, I'm going to be a star like Judy Garland. And then to find out about the horrible, how horribly they treated her and just to learn, you know, what this story is about. I always think it's fascinating, the juxtaposition of how those on set and the making of are treated. So just like a, a quick rundown of all the horrible things that happened, if you don't know, on set. Starting with the health and safety issues. Um, so Buddy Epson was originally supposed to play the Tin Man. And he was hospitalized before even getting to uh, be on screen. Well, they shot some things and he had to get replaced. He was hospitalized because they put aluminum powder paste all over his skin and um, body, parts of his body, woke up, couldn't breathe, had severe reaction to it, would not have been able to survive in time. So they said, okay, we don't care. We're going to replace you um, with Jack Haley, who also, even though they changed it to, he also had a reaction to the makeup. On top of that, Margaret Hamilton, who played the Wicked Witch of the West, suffered second degree burns on her face and third degree burns on her hands. So in that scene where she was um Oh my in god. Yeah, in Munchkinland where you know when she you're like, yeah, "Oh, yeah, it's yeah. fire." Well, that fire, someone was actually coming down, you know, through the stage and her makeup caught fire, so she had hands all burns all over her hand and face. Jesus. And surprise surprise MGM MGM didn't care didn't give a fuck they were like um okay just hurry up and as fast as you can you're we're gonna put gloves over your third degree burns and you're gonna finish out per your contract um the winged monkeys um were suspended from wires which broke during one of the shoots so several actors i'm not don't mean to i mean it's awful but they were just hurt the snow scene the poppies that we were talking about the field was made from industrial grade asbestos. My Toxic. God. And obviously there were other harsh working conditions. There was a lot of animal wear welfare. The horses in Emerald City were colored with jello crystals. And when the horses licked them off, it led to poisoning of the horses. Toto was originally no. played um, by a little acute terrier named Terry. But Terry was stepped on by one of the guards at the palace and had a broken foot and had to be replaced by a double for two weeks of filming. And shout out to Terry because in the rewatch, this dog is phenomenal. <laughs> <laughs> phenomenal. Dog does a lot of the heavy emotional labor of this movie. That's a long list of fuckery. So I'll a little palate cleanse. Toto is supposed to be the teetlers. So Toto is represents the prohibition party. Wow. So, <laughs> yes. I picked that up for sure, yeah. So yeah, now now back to your list of abuses and Yeah, yeah. So um, just just to finalize it, this is probably more known that, you know, obviously there was the extreme exploitation of Judy Garland was a child. Originally the role of Dorothy was supposed to go to Shirley Temple who was brought in and they were like, oh, uh-oh, she can't really sing the part. And so Judy at age, I think it was 14, was told, you're basically too fat and ugly, so we're going to give it to you because you have a great voice, but you ha we're going to put you on all these diet pills. Um, basically, she was like, 
could drink coffee and was on, you know, cocaine, essentially, whatever they put into these drugs to keep her awake into these amphetamines. And then she would have the barbiturates to go to sleep. And we know that this led to a lifelong struggle with drug dependency. And she was a child, a child. And there was a lot of some of the munchkins were played by children also, you know, just lot famous for the exploitation. So I'll end my rant there. But I just had to put that off there. Particularly for a kids movie that all these kids are watching. And like, I just think that 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 is such a wild juxtaposition that children love this film. It's so famous. And we're just watching on screen like (laughs) exploitation of these actors, especially in the midst of, you know, the the actors strike right now. And it just highlights again that we are still all these years later fighting for basic rights on set. Obviously, it's not Mm. like that. Well, I'm not even going to say that. Some sets are still like that. All right. Well, Francisco, uh, this has been, I think, maybe one of the most educational episodes we've ever done. Um, <laughs> sorry to Harvey K, uh, who is going to be upset by that. But we. this is the point in the episode where we give out awards for this movie. We got three of them. Um, the first one is Best Politics goes to the character with the best politics in the movie. I want to say the Scarecrow. Yeah. Um, because he's the one who kind of starts the party and he's, you know, when, um, when they're going to go rescue, um, Dorothy, he's the one who's like, come on, like, let's let, we got to do this. Right. So I feel like, and he also like, again, the, the, the sort of farmer is the sort of hero of the story. So I feel like him and Dorothy, Mm. um, are kind of at the, at the center. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, it's a tough one. I think that's a good one. He's the first one in he's, he's, Takes a lot of hits on behalf of the team. Uh, he gets th- gets his insides thrown around a lot. Um, yeah, he wants to go save Dorothy at the end. Um, and he had one line which which I really loved, which was "Some people without brains do an awful lot of talking." Isn't that right? So, I think for that alone, I will, I agree. I think I'll also give this to the Scarecrow. Yeah, I guess I'll give it to the Scarecrow. I don't know. I think this is really fascinating that this isn't. I usually find this question to be pretty clear when we come to it for most of those films that we've looked at and I think it's important to note that what I love about this story is it really pushes against the what at the time was like a very typical mythology where you would have good and evil and just one other piece of how the history when this came out it was um, Snow White had just come out and was like killing it everyone loved Snow White it was Disney And so MGM was like, we want a child's tale. We're going to do Wizard of Oz, but really kind of pushed against a lot of trying to make like they wanted they really didn't want the anything to be beautiful or have that black and white um, typical story that you would see. And so, yeah, I think this just I think that's fascinating that now I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Everyone's pretty nuanced. It's not very clear who has Mm -hmm. good politics and who has bad politics. So stump me but i'll give it to this i'll give it to the scarecrow all right our next award is worst politics goes to the character with the worst politics in the movie i'm i'm gonna go ahead and just say the wizard the wonderful wizard of oz like <laughs> i like i understand I, I understand that uh you know the wicked witch of the west is portrayed as like the villain of the movie but the wizard is a real is a real shit you know like he he basically has them go uh, do his dirty work by killing the wicked witch. He's like, oh, I'm not going to help you until you sacrifice, until you risk your lives to kill my one enemy. 
And then when they actually do it, he's like, oh, sorry, can't actually help you. Come back later. Maybe I'll help you. Um, and then he's just full of shit. He's just a, a snake oil salesman. And that's what I, I really appreciated on this watch that like the, you know, what, what is it like Professor Marvel or whatever? His his analog in, in Kansas is an actual snake oil salesman. Like this guy is a complete con artist, mm -hmm. like the crystal ball. He's just rifling through her purse. This dude has definitely sold someone like the essence of a of a chupacabra that definitely poisoned someone. And, you know, like the FDA exists because of men like this. So mm -hmm. I'm going to give it to The Wizard of Oz. Which was not in the original book that was added by the screenwriters. Yeah, the, uh, absolutely agree. I mean, I love the, the, the very obvious parallel where it's like he's a snake's oil salesman. And even at the end, so Rockoff talks about this in his article, the hot air balloon, the dude is full of hot air, right? Like mm. they're telling you like yep. he's full of shit, right? Like <laughs> he flies off and, and then it's like, whoops, sorry, I can't take you back to Kansas. Like, and I think in the book he gives, you know, cause he gives them like a, a heart. He gives a Tin Man a heart. He gives a Scarecrow uh, a, a brain. And like in the movie, they're like kind of cooler little trinkets. In the book, I think it's like he's giving them like useless crap. Um, like, look, here's a, here's a brain, right? Like here's like a needle and thread that you can call a brain or something like that. You know what? I'm going Glenda the Good Witch. Wow. <laughs> Speak on hear, it. Hear me out. Because if we're going to go so hard, at least, I don't know, I have some kind of soft there's something in me that understands the psychology of the snake oil salesman. And I think at least in the movie, we get enough into like, I'm just like, there's a cowardness there. I see him as so a part of his system. So a part of the pressure of like this Emerald City and like hiding behind this thing. I don't know. I have empathy for that. She never shows her cards. She just, like we said, comes in at the end and is like, I knew the answer all along. I could have ended all this suffering. <laughs> but I just thought it would be best to not or uh, no justification given at all. Like to me, that's more heinous. And yeah, because if he's hot air, I, what do you call that? She's just watching the whole thing could have appeared at any moment. Yeah, that's like sociopath behavior. That's like, I'm just going to like, like play with you like a pawn and just watch you. And there's got to be like a political parallel for I mean, that's real. Like, I feel like that there's something so ultimately deceptive about being the one pulling all the strings in some ways, because mm. they they also just like adore her. anywhere she goes in her little pink bubble. They all fall down <laughs> on their like she is <laughs> ruling this kingdom and can come and go. I mean, and then we're but then we're meant to be like, oh, the Wizard of Oz, the wizard like our attention is here. But like, watch her, you know, no, that's a good one. All right, and then our last award is Best Supporting Character Slash Spinoff. This goes to the supporting character uh, in this movie that this movie should actually be about. I got one right off the top, and it, as soon as I saw it, I was like, this is what I want. Um, I want to see the Lollipop Guild movie. I want to oh. see I want to see the lollipop workers unionize or the artisans <laughs> for the artisans form a guild. I guess this is, you know, maybe like pre-unionization, but... Yeah, I was just happy to see that there was some organized labor in Munchkinland, and I would watch a whole movie about that. To me, the flying monkeys, once you realize that they're supposed to kind of stand in for, for Native Americans, and, like, there's that scene where, like, you know, um, Dorothy liquidates the the Wicked Witch of the East, and then they're scared of how the monkeys will react, and they're like, no, man, we're, like, liberated now. And I'm like, what happens to the monkeys once they're liberated? Like, where do they go? Like, oh, yeah. Right? Like, what, what happened? I'm like, can I get that spinoff? 
Um, yeah, so that that that's my vote. Okay, not to belabor this, but as you said that, I'm like, and all the witches are kind of sisters here. Like, they got some stuff going on. Obviously, wicked. The whole thing was made, but you're like, Glinda knows about the oppression of the monkeys as well. Like, <laughs> she probably knows a little water would do the trick. Like, okay. I would love to stay in the sepia world a little bit. Like, I was really fascinated by Kansas and by, yeah, just by like all the character. I wanted a little more time there to understand on DM and understand what was going on. I think that would be a really interesting place. Like, what's happening while she's knocked out and having this pretty incredible dream fantasy? Like, she has a great time. Like, what is happening for all of them while they're, like, hiding from the tornado? Is it Twister? What's going on? That's that's oh, a film sure. I'd like to see. All right, Francisco, again, thank you so much for your time and for teaching us so much. Uh, this has been such a pleasure. Before we wrap, the last thing we like to do with our guests is ask how we strive to practice our values in our everyday life. So is there one thing that you do in your life, either a practice you engage in, an organization you work with, that you would like to share with us? Yeah, so thank you for, for the chance to talk about this. Um, you know, I, I work with the Center for Economic Democracy, and we put out um, this curriculum that I mentioned earlier, Economics for Emancipation, which all of you are you know, free to, to, to go on the website, download the materials. We still do these workshops with groups of activists all over the country and all over the world. Um, you know, again, trying to really help people who are on the front lines of this kind of work to really understand this stuff, right? So I've done workshops on monetary policy with environmental justice activists who want to end fossil finance, who want to end the financing of fossil fuels, for example, right? So, you know, that that to me is what I what I like to offer. That's my contribution. Conversations like this, I hope, you know, they're not always this fun, but, you know, try to get people to understand, um, help people understand how the, some of this stuff works, how capitalism works, how monetary and fiscal policy work, uh, et cetera, so that they can become better organizers, you know, organize better campaigns with, with better strategies and hopefully liberate us all. Amazing. And we'll make sure to link to that free curriculum and um, to the Center for Economic Democracy and Center for Popular Economics in the show notes. But where can our audience find you personally on the Internet if you want them to? Yeah, so I'm at Platanomics, so at uh, P-L-A-T-A-N-M-N-O-M-I-C-S on Instagram and Twitter. Awesome. Francisco, thank you so much for your time yeah. today. This was a lot of fun. No, thank you all so much. This is, this is great. Thank you all so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And if you want to support the show and get access to our premium episodes, you can go to mvcpod.com to find all of that information. For next week's movie, we'll be watching another bug movie, the 2007 animated film B-Movie. Thanks, everyone. Bye.